Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey, everyone. I'm just here to warn you guys that there is going to be some graphic descriptions of um, sexual violence and uh, actually even infanticide in this episode. So if that's not something you want to hear, maybe maybe you can skip this one. So most of the stories that you're going to hear on a given Strangers in China episode are all from Shanghai. But this episode, you're going to get to hear a lot of voices from Beijing. I want to introduce Kuang. My name is Huangcheng Kuang. I'm from Jiangxi in South China. Kuang is an exceptional writer that is part of the Beijing-based literary collective called Spittoon. I had heard of her through my Shanghai writers group that I go to, and I actually interviewed her on stage for an event uh, about a year and a half ago. She does this series of essays called Beijing Lights. Each essay is a short profile that tells the story of a real Beijinger. And some of the stories that Kuang has found are totally unbelievable. In this series, Beijing Lights, Kuang has captured this cross-section of Beijing and of China more broadly in a way that no one really has access to. You're going to hear excerpts of some of her pieces in this episode, but you should definitely go and read all of her work, which we'll link to in the description. Working morning to night, what we earned was just enough to make ends meet. My parents graced me with a nice name. But that didn't spare me from all the hardships in my life. But I got back with him anyway. I'm an idiot, right? For a few years, I served as one of Deng Xiaoping's personal guards. Every two or three days, local officials came to our house trying to convince my mom to have me aborted. I sometimes imagine what life was like for them decades ago. I feel so lucky to live in this era. These essays are amazing. Kuang is able to bring out a unique voice in everyone that she profiles. Even though each piece has this delicate touch, the work as a whole carries this weight of both historical and sociological importance. That being said, each piece just feels like you're talking to somebody. You're listening in on their story. I sat down with Kuang back in November when she was visiting Shanghai. Of course, I wanted to talk to Kuang about her work and her life. But as someone who also tries to elevate real stories of Chinese folks, I have to admit, 
I'm envious of the level of access that is so apparent in her work. She has access to these incredible stories. But I'm more envious of the light touch that she has. She so effortlessly captures a person's life in these beautiful short essays. Kwong spends a lot of her own time living other people's stories. So I thought it would be great to hear her story. So anyway, this is Kwong. Act one, God of Thunder. Because I'm the youngest daughter, and, and you know, being the youngest means, yeah, I am the silly one when, when I'm home. Uh, so I have four elder sisters. <clears throat> My elder sister, she's 11 years older. There are five of us, and uh, it's quite unusual for my age. Kuang's got a big family, which is unusual in China. I think the one child policy started um, late 70s until 2015. And early 90s was the time that the policy was really strict. I think why my parents managed to get five children is probably because we live in the countryside. And you know, some people, like, if you, if you choose to be tough and not obedient, you can still do it, like, because you, you have the right to give, him, to give birth. And some people, they are very obedient when, when they are told, oh, you can only give, one tri- give birth to one child, they obeyed it. My parents didn't. They want more children. Uh, the reason, one of the reasons is yes, they try to have a have a boy, but then they ended up having five daughters. But uh, there was not single time that I felt I'm, like I was seen less important because I'm a girl. There wasn't a single time that I felt this way. My parents always always gave us uh, as much as love as they could, and. Uh, and actually, even before I was born, they know I was a girl, and they decided to keep me anyway. They fought really hard to keep me. As a kid in rural Jiangxi, Kuang had a vivid imagination. I was so scared of thunderstorms. Whenever there is sunstone, I was so worried about those people who are not in the house. Because I would sit there, I was like, oh, uh, it's so dangerous outside, and I, I, I wish no one's out, um, outside, probably in the, especially not uh, in the mountain. Because um, I was told um, there is a god of thunder, Lei Gong, and they bomb people if they think, if, if, if he thinks he did something bad it's so random but that's what i what i was told when i was a kid and i believed it so um i i took it um 100 and so whenever there was a stone I, I got very worried i think it makes a lot of sense that she would worry so much about angry gods striking down people in her village you see kwang was born into a world of turmoil Forces beyond her control were trying to snuff out her life before it even started. This is an excerpt from Beijing Lights number five, the Beijing Lights that tells Kuang's own story. Every two or three days, local officials came to our house trying to convince my mom 
to have me aborted. My parents exerted every means to delay the act, putting it off until my mum was almost in her eighth month of pregnancy. One of my dad's friends told him there is a type of medicine that can accelerate the labour process. My dad tapped his whole network and managed to secretly arrange the injection before the abortion surgery. The abortion was also done by injection, only with a huge needle, and the doctor used his hands to feel the position of the baby to make sure the injection would be fatal. Pretending that she was feeling unwell, my mom shifted around as much as she could in the hope to make the injections miss. Thanks to the earlier medicine and her intentional movements, the abortion didn't kill me. My mom gave birth to me in the hospital at 3 a.m. Afraid that the doctor would give another injection if he found out the baby was still alive, my mom gave birth in complete silence. She shared a ward with a dozen other patients and no one knew she was having a baby coming out of her body, not even the lady whose bed was less than a metre away. The hospital was located next to a river. My mom said she saw the bodies of dead babies floating over the river. Forced abortion was nothing surprising at that time. Regularly, I think of those babies whose lives were never able to blossom and grow. I am grief-stricken to picture the vivid and complex lives they could have had as we do. Because when, when my mom told the story, uh, told the story that when I was born, like all this uh, uh, forced ab abortion thing, I think she told me the first time when I was about seven or eight, and I was pretty young to take all that um, information and an image. Um, and I was I was a sensitive kid, I think. Uh, so yeah, I think about it quite a lot. My mom would always say like, "Oh, it took us so much effort to to bring you to this world." Yeah, and then they said, "Oh, 大难不死必有后福 It means um uh can be very loosely translated as if you survive this um extreme hardship, you will you will have great fortune. So my mom always say, "Oh, you are you." You're born as a fighter. Like even before you were, you you were in this world. You you started fighting to get here. So you must be you must be a lifelong fighter. And those children that、mm, they're not able to make it, they're not as lucky as you, and they're not as um as a、uh, strong fighting spirit as you. And then you are strong、uh, even. Um, even before you're born, I know I, that's just a nice way that my mom put it. I think to try to encourage me, try to motivate me. But as a sensitive kid, I always think、um, because it, it is it's strange to think that to imagine that oh you are not you're actually not welcomed in this world, and、uh, it is so very likely that.、Um, You probably wouldn't have be living this life if, like anything, anything happened in another way. You probably will be one of these floating bodies in the river.、Uh, so it's、um, as a child, it's, it's not easy for me to take. And I, I also would imagine these other kids, like what, what will they like if they, they made it through,、uh, they survived. And they probably will like me, like sitting here thinking about these questions and、uh, um, going through all these things in life.
why my mom stayed as a as a teacher until she retired. Um, but actually, when I was born, the government took away her job, and、uh, took away all the land we had, like the ownership of the land we had, and it took away the furnitures. The government took away that jobs. I don't know if if it's something to do with they giving birth to me. My dad used his network to to get my mom's job back. A lot of horrible things happened、um, during family plan, like. Taking away the job and tear down your house,、um, like my uncle's house was torn down because they gave birth to a third child.、Um, yeah, and even they took away all our furniture. Yeah, I remember the stories I was told when I was young. So we don't have anything. They they literally just want to cut your lifeline, like、uh, take your job and take your land,、mm, so make life really difficult for you. Amidst all this turmoil, Quang grew up in a beautiful place into a family that, by comparison, was one of the lucky ones. I don't remember that.、Uh, I remember being a big family and being loved、um, by a lot of people because, like, all my sisters、um, love me, and my parents and my grandfather. I don't remember being growing up. Living a difficult way. I mean, I don't know.、Um, like, if you see from nowadays standard, life back then is probably underprivileged. But it's not not like I I was hungry or anything. Like I was I was happy enough. I was having a relatively happy childhood.、Mm, so I don't remember life being difficult. And probably comparing to other families in the village, my family was having a pretty Good life. It's a sm- very small village,、um, and、uh, my house, our house, is close, close by river. And in front of the house is a is a is wide rice terrace. So it's it's beautiful,、um, and、uh, we get a lot of outdoor funs like swimming in the river, like spend the whole afternoon. Going to the mountains, like exploring different plants,、um, and sometimes you can bring a book with you. So it's it's really、um, it's carefree. Act two. Through Kuang's eyes. I think when I was junior high school, I I moved to the to the county city. So, as a ten year for a ten year old, is is a big change, I think. And we speak different dialect. I was the only kid in the class speak different from others, and I actually took it quite um quite a hard.、Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I would I think I was trying a bit hard to to. Be popular, like not popular, but to have friends and to act and to talk like other kids in the class. And sometimes it probably didn't work that well. In middle school, Kwang had a hard time fitting in, and she wasn't really a great student either. Um, I wasn't a good student. I I was a I was a dreamer. Like I I daydream. I was daydreaming a lot. 
Like, <laughs> I was a quite, I was quite student, I guess. It's not like I, I was bad behaved a kid, but just I, when I was eleven or twelve, I started having my own thoughts、um, quite a lot, and、uh, I wasn't. I don't know if it's right to say I wasn't one of those normal students that care the、um, performance, like the school performance a lot. I started having like immersed in my own world,、uh, daydreaming a lot. Like you know, teachers always pay attention to these top, probably I don't know five or top ten students, and then those the big part in the middle, teacher teachers don't pay pay attention to them. So I I was、um, pretty neg neglected during my whole school year. Her first experience with writing was the self discovery that comes with keeping a diary. I kept a diary since I was. Yes, it's a long time habit. When I had a very quick read through of the diaries, I was surprised to see my older self. Like comparing to photos, it's even a more direct and confronting way to see your older self to read your diaries from before. And I don't find that a very pleasant experience for me. I feel like I'm I'm that kind of person. I like like to change. I don't mean change in a very dramatic way. Yeah, that being said, I feel like I feel like I'm I'm trying to escape from my old self. I mean in in a positive way, actually. I'm just trying to be different, but in a in a good way by every single passing day. The first time she wrote for an audience was that she wrote love letters for her classmates. When I was still in junior high school, and you know the teenagers started getting oh having secret um crash or something, then um like they probably write love letters like to to each other, and、uh, but some of them they can't really write very well. Like people would approach to me saying, "Oh, could you please write this letter for me? Like I really like this girl, but I don't know how to express it. Could you, could you write a short letter for me?" And I was really happy to do it. And、uh, those letters up、uh, were were very well received. The thing about Kuang is that. She's not an extrovert, but she does approach people. She's interested in them, and that's how she came to write Beijing Lights. I always was told that oh, you have such.、Um, I hope I don't、uh, sound very bragging, but people always told me that Kuang, you have such great people skills. You just get、um, along with people very in a very natural way. I was never seen as an extrovert, but then when I talk to people, I I wouldn't I wouldn't make make it awkward. I think I can always find a small thing to start a conversation. I I saw a old nanny in the hutong sitting outside and has her、um, fingernails colored, so I stopped saying, "Oh, that's really nice color. Did you do it yourself?" And then we started some conversation. So I think I find I find little things to break to break the conversation first, to give them a an express to to give them the impression that 
I'm friendly and I'm interested. Um, and I mean well. I think her greatest success in this regard, in just approaching normal people, is in Beijing Lights number 18. She talked to a man who was peddling plastic mats while she was waiting for her train at Beijing Station. Ma Changyou, male, from Tongchuan, Shanxi, hawker. My parents graced me with a nice name, but that didn't spare me from all the hardships in my life. My family was so poor that I always went hungry as a kid. Sometimes I had to go out begging or picking up leftovers to fill my belly. There are many mines near my village. The canteens would provide steam buns for the workers, a luxury many locals couldn't afford. I always brought a bowl with me to school and dashed to wait in front of the canteen after class, catching the leftovers before they got dumped in the bin. Without money to support me, I dropped out of school early in my junior high years to work for private mines. Several times I nearly died. One time, the mine collapsed. I was buried under debris for hours. By the time I was finally dug out and took to the hospital, I'd lost consciousness. I was in a coma for seven days. On the eighth day, I woke up to a missing index finger on my left hand, a missing pinky on my right hand, and a severely crippled leg. Even now I can't walk without a cane. A private-run mine means no contract, no protection of rights. The boss gave me a little over 10,000 kwai and settled in secret. I've also spent some time in prison. What happened? Well, you might think it's a joke, but it was really nothing serious. I stole a hat from a police officer. I remember it well. It was in 1983, a time when the government imposed a nationwide crackdown on crimes. A minor mistake could land you in big trouble. People were taken to jail or even shot to death. Okay, here's what happened. We were watching an outdoor movie put on by the town. Sitting in front of me was this officer wearing an army cap. It was a gorgeous cap. So I took it on a whim. I couldn't help it. Who wouldn't want to own a cap like that? I can almost see myself as a respectable officer in it. Because of that minor offense, I was sentenced to eight years. They released me after four. Alas, I came out just as muddle-headed, but with an inerasable prison record. Always stay curious. Always stay, stay um, aware of the surroundings. Like when I went to buy fruits, I probably always talk to the fruit vendor, like ask her about her day, her family, like these small things stuff, but nothing very deep. Yeah, so I, I would always um, feel like uh, enjoy, enjoy the s some of these small talks with people I met, either like fruit sellers or people in the restaurants and the taxi drivers, stuff like that. Mm. Excerpts from Beijing Lights number 13. My life is an endless loop. Yao Xue Mei, female, 56 years old, from Hebei province, vegetable seller. These years, life's not been easy for me. I'm originally from Dinxing in Hebei. After I got married in 1985, I came to Beijing with my husband to open a small business. We started selling vegetables at Herping Li Farmer's Market. 
one of Beijing's first large-scale farmers' markets. After it was shut down in 2006, we rented a small semi-basement and tore out a wall to make it into a food stall. We sold vegetables there for 10 years before Beijing started cracking down on illegally built houses and we were forced to leave. We scrambled until we found another place, but it got torn down again after only two years. After that, we moved here. Though we need to pay 80,000 RMB a year, the good thing is that this place belongs to the government, so we don't need to worry that it will be demolished. We can just focus on our business. For all these years, we've been selling vegetables to raise our daughter and son and to support their education. Even though they both attended public school, since we didn't have a Beijing hukou, we had to pay extra to secure their spots. We made the payments from when they were in preschool all the way through high school. It was not a small sum. Over 30 years of hard work and we could never afford a house here. Working morning to night, what we earned was just enough to make ends meet. After paying rent every month and paying this or that fee, we hardly had any money left. My husband passed away five years ago. He was young, only 47 years old. We got along well, never fought much during our marriage. It's more just that we were so busy earning a living, day in and day out, we didn't have the time for quarrelling. Misfortune piles on misfortune. Two years after my husband passed, my son got into trouble. He was working with two businessmen doing their accounting for a highway construction project. Who could have known the project was connected to illegal activities? One businessman got sentenced to 19 years in jail, the other 18. My son was sentenced to 10 years. He is kept at Shang Ban Chang Prison in Chongda City. I get to see him once a month. We talk to each other through metal bars. My daughter-in-law and my grandson come with me on the visits. My grandson will be turning six in August. He's a good kid. Even though he only sees his dad once a month, they've grown close. I'm always interested in people. I have this mindset to think everyone's important. It's important. I always think I can I can learn a learn something new from whoever. Like when I when even when I was living living in the village, I like talk to those old people in the village. When I was a kid, I wouldn't feel oh they are boring. So I guess I have this interest. I had the first article done, and um, after the article, I. Personally, feel like I feel I've learned a lot from talking to this person, and also the person she gave me like great feedbacks to say, "Oh, I I really appreciate the interview." And um, she's a cleaner, by the way. And she said, "I felt yeah, and I felt I was I was seen and I was I was heard um, the first time." And I think what she just said means so much to this project. That's actually what Beijing Life is all about. So that really gave me motivation to to continue.
Act 3. History and where we go from here. Right as Kuang moved to Beijing, tragedy struck. A tragedy which altered her perspective on life. This is an excerpt, again, from Beijing Lights number 5. The one that tells Kuang's story. I came to Beijing for school in 2014. Beijing experienced terrible pollution that year. Most of the winter days were heavily polluted and grey and suffocating. It was also that winter I lost my best friend. Two months after I started school, I got a phone call telling me she had a car accident. Um, my instinctive action was not to believe it, so I called her right after, and it says the phone you died is piled off. And that exact sentence became my nightmare. Even today, I still, I feel like I still hear that sentence um, repeating in my, in my head. I was completely falling apart. I didn't, I didn't talk to anyone for over a month, um, at least at that time. So I locked myself up. I did nothing but reading books. So I stayed in the school library from early morning till late night um, to try to avoid talking to people and also try to find answer or comfort from the books. Um, because I, I think besides the great sadness um, about the loss, I also had this anger. Why her? Why it has to be her? She's the loveliest person I've ever known in my life. Um, so ever smiling, always considerate, um, and just everybody loves her. Um, so after a month, I think I, I had this, um, it's like an enlightenment moment. It gives me a, a new perspective. Um, as I live, like she remains as a part of me, as a part in me, as I live, she lives. So I try to carry on the great qualities that she has with me. She is in everything I do. So she's also part of Beijing Lights. connection between this tragedy and her sense of duty in writing Beijing Lights. Beijing Lights is about carrying people's stories forward, creating a small history of their existence so that they can live on. Kuang's curiosity draws her to people with incredible stories. But it's her empathy that is so disarming. People end up telling her very sensitive and very important stories. Um, and I, I, I wouldn't push in the beginning for those sensitive questions. 
um, I wouldn't ask them in the beginning in the conversation. Like I, I, I talk a lot other. I mean, the articles they are pretty short, but the conversation sometimes can go for two or three hours. So later in the conversation, you really feel make the interview. You feel very comfortable with you, and I feel um, feel that you can be trusted, and um, and also get the impression that what they say matters, like the opinion matters. They're not. Nobody, and you are genuinely interested in in that story. Excerpt from Beijing Lights Number Four. Is there any insurance for marriage? Female, thirty-three years old, from Shandong Province. I can't think of any romantic memories from over two years of marriage. He's anything but a sweet talker, and quite the opposite if he has a bad temper. A few times he called me honey. That would make me happy for days. Unlike me, he's an only child from an all right family, so he's barely experienced hardship. He doesn't understand that it's not easy to earn a living and refuses to take just any job. Instead, he fantasizes about making a big fortune overnight through so-called investment. But there are no pennies from heaven. All his impulsive investments turned out in vain. Meanwhile, I'm doing better at my job day by day, which makes him feel that I stole his thunder and the dominant role at home. That's why we started arguing more and more. We actually had a breakup once. After we dated for a while, I found him quite emotionally unstable, so I broke up with him. Then a few days later, he showed up at my workplace with a fruit knife, put it to my throat, and demanded I take him back. I was so stupid, but I got back with him anyway. I'm an idiot, right? There must be something wrong with me. We had a terrible fight yesterday. He grabbed the back of my neck, threw me violently to the floor, and shouted at me to get out of my house. My head hit the ground hard, and it still hurts terribly. At this point, he has totally destroyed all my faith in our marriage. I no longer expect anything from him. The only thing that's weighing on my chest is my two-year-old son. I can't imagine life without him, but there's no way my husband will give me custody. I had an abortion this April. I was over four months into my pregnancy. The baby had grown enough that you could clearly see the shape of its hands and feet. He died prematurely due to a heart development problem. When I had the abortion surgery, I was so calm that I even surprised the doctor. I wouldn't cry over it. It's not like it was going to make any difference. I actually feel relieved that I didn't give birth to a second child. Otherwise, my life would be even more broken with my heart divided between two children. It was an unplanned pregnancy. My husband sometimes removes the condom during sex, or even doesn't bother to wear it. He doesn't care about the consequences for me. It's partly my fault that I didn't try to be tougher and defend myself because I wanted to avoid conflict. But I'm awake to it now, after that painful pregnancy experience. I won't forget that pain. My mother-in-law can't get anywhere with him either. He won't listen to her, and I know what kind of comfort I can expect from her. She would tell me that's how marriage works. She would tell me to endure. Your father-in-law and I have been arguing our whole life, but we survived, didn't we? That's probably how most of the older generation think of marriage. What marriage doesn't have its bumps? They say. 
But I don't deserve to be treated this way. Nobody does. Beijing Lights as a series is telling stories that are all too real, all too prevalent, yet still totally unheard in China. As a collection, these stories show an incredibly dense arc of history. China has changed so drastically in the past 50 years, and Kuang has spent a lot of her time gathering the stories of an older generation. I think people in China, especially those older generations, like they spawn early, like 40s, They've been through so many stuff in their life, um, because those past decades China has witnessed so much change, um, and the historical events. Um, yeah, some of the traumas they definitely they came from from history, came from national policy. Excerpt from Beijing Lights Number Eleven: Life is completely meaningless to me. Male, eighty-six years old from Sichuan province, a retired veteran. I joined the army after I turned 15. For a few years, I served as one of Deng Xiaoping's personal guards. He has a sharp mind, but he's very short. When he stood together with other officials, he only reached their shoulders. During the time I served Deng, I got to see many of the top state officials, like Liu Bochang and Fu Zuoyi. I fought in several battles during my service in the army, including the historical Huaihai Campaign, where the Communist Party battled against the Kuomintang. At one point, the two armies were separated by only about 50 to 70 meters. In the Kuomintang ranks, I instantly recognized my eldest brother. He wore an officer's uniform. He recognized me too, his little brother from all those years ago, grown up and serving in the army of the opposing side. We didn't get the chance to say a single word to each other, despite being only a few meters apart. And after so many years, it was simply not allowed. I was dismissed from the army at 21. Because I only had four years of education in primary school, I didn't get a job placement as a veteran. I was sent back to the countryside. Think about it. My family background included landlords and military officers, two hats you don't want to wear. Because of these two hats, my life was more difficult than usual. I was sent down for farming every day. Worse, most of the time, we were working in the rice paddies, with water rising up to our knees. During the planting season, it was common to soak in the water for 20 to 30 days. My knees were badly damaged from that kind of work. After I got a little older, my legs stopped working right, and now I can hardly walk. But I, I had the impression that when I talk to people, they always, they seem, no matter what they, they've been through in their life, they have such great attitude. Like they're just so acceptive to everything. Because when, when they talk to me, even when talked about the very difficult part, 
the way they talk about it wasn't complaining or self pity. Of course, I can't can't represent all those people I talk to, but I think many Chinese people always believe in 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 fate and in, in destiny. What happened is what happened, and there is nothing、um, I could do about it. And I was born in this. I was put in this situation. I was put in this historical background. So this seem this seems un un unavoidable, probably. That's probably when. Why I like talking to old people, and why I think talking to them is important,、uh, because I think what they've been through needs to be remembered, needs to be known by the、um, younger generations before they're totally forgotten. I think in that way, our generation don't we don't have that, but that doesn't mean that part of history is not important for us. Mm-hmm. It's still very important, and、uh, at least I wish I could I could remain one of those always care about that part. Wish our like the younger generation, like the generation after us, can still think about those. Excerpt from Beijing Lights Number Seventeen. My days as a child are slipping away. Jiang He. Eight years old, from Beijing, primary school student. I'm eight years old this year. I think the purpose of life is to study and ultimately work hard for the country. I was born in Beijing, lived here my whole life. I don't have many recollections from earlier. Only a few vague memories of attending kindergarten when I was five or six, sitting in my mom's car, and feeling the breeze brush over my face on the way to school. Kindergarten was better than primary school. You got food three times: in the morning, around noon time, and in the afternoon. I also had a girlfriend in kindergarten. She was one of my classmates. I liked her a lot. Why did I like her? I can't explain it. All I can say is that I really did. It's a pity that we don't attend the same school anymore. I attend a Muslim elementary school. And a few of my classmates are Hui. We like to eat different foods, and sometimes we don't dress the same. But aside from that, I don't see much difference between us. After starting first grade, we have to wear a red scarf. It signals that we're not little kids anymore, but members of the youth vanguard. The teachers tell us the red scarf carries a lot of significance. For formal school events like the flag raising ceremony every Monday morning. We must make sure we are wearing it properly. Since the second grade, my homework has increased a lot. Every day when I get home after school, it takes me at least one hour to finish everything. I just became a third grader this year. I think the homework pile will only get bigger. Grandpa and Grandma never talk about their life growing up. I never ask either. I sometimes imagine what life was like for them decades ago. There was war. There wasn't enough food. Thinking of that, I feel so lucky to live in this era. For my future, I've considered many plans, including becoming a doctor or a police officer. But I said no to them all. Those jobs seem too risky. I'm the type who doesn't like risks. I think my generation 
we're not really affected by history that much, like comparing to the older generations. I think my generation is more like growing up in a faster trend in China. I had this conversation with my friends because when we were still in our very early twenty, like when we were around twenty years old in the university, we felt like, oh my god, remember what what life was like when you were a child, and those things are just gone, like disappeared,、um, and it feels felt like you can't believe it was ten years ago, and then we we have to. And adjust ourselves very quickly to get into the new pace of the world. Yeah, just trying, trying to, to ready to to adapt every day. And I think that's that's a big part of of our generation. At the end of our interview. I just asked Kuang what Beijing Lights, as a project, means to her.、Mm, I think, in in a way, this project really helped me, like widen my perspective. But I do think the service really helped me to always be understanding, forgiven, and、uh, have more love towards people.、Mm, I think for each individual, I I can see a part of myself in them. People sometimes message me saying, "Oh, just has such a sad life." I had so much sympathy for him. I don't. I know these people read read、uh, mean very well, but I don't really want sympathy for those people. I think you just can't really define. Oh, this is a great life and this is a bad life, just according to what they had in life, like what they had in their hands. Like if they have enough money, if they have a good house. To define, oh, this person he has a great life. I think it's just life. Whatever they've had, they've experienced is their life. You can't take away that experience from them. And what they've experienced made who they are today. So I don't think think even yes, they are having a difficult life. Like they need to work a lot, and they don't have much money, and they don't eat. Eat good food, but why those? Like why those deserve sympathy? I I don't really want sympathy for those people, but I want um I think empathy. Yes, like I I more like I would more like people to say oh I I can see part of myself in him like in this person. What if you didn't get a chance to to have good. Good education. What if you don't have a support supportive family behind you? Then what will happen to you, right? So these these things can happen to everyone. Like、um, living a life that you don't wish to live, and、um, fight for something that you didn't get it, and then love someone that you don't get the love back, or lose someone you you love. All these things that human things. They had, yes, they probably happened to this one person, but hasn't happened to you. But that doesn't mean this thing is this person's, and this is human thing. This is Kuang's story in its full form. 
in her own words. Beijing Lights Number Five. I grew up in a remote village in Jiangxi. The village is very small, with less than two hundred residents. If you talk loudly enough, people living on either end of the village can hear you. It's a hundred and fifty-minute bus ride from my village to the county city, and the bus only runs once a day in the very early morning. I had to get up at five a.m. in order to catch the bus. I have four elder sisters. This is quite rare for people about my age because the family plan was extremely strict around the 1990s. Every two or three days, local officials came to our house trying to convince my mom to have me aborted. My parents exerted every means to delay the act, putting it off until my mom was almost in her eighth month of pregnancy. One of my dad's friends told him there is a type of medicine that can accelerate the labour process. My dad tapped his whole network and managed to secretly arrange the injection before the abortion surgery. The abortion was also done by injection, only with a huge needle, and the doctor used his hands to feel the position of the baby to make sure the injection would be fatal. Pretending that she was feeling unwell, my mom shifted around as much as she could in the hope to make the injections miss. Thanks to the earlier medicine and her intentional movements, the abortion didn't kill me. My mom gave birth to me in the hospital at 3 a.m. Afraid that the doctor would give another injection if he found out the baby was still alive, my mom gave birth in complete silence. She shared a ward with a dozen other patients, and no one knew she was having a baby coming out of her body. Not even the lady whose bed was less than a meter away. The hospital was located next to a river. My mom said she saw the bodies of dead babies floating over the river. Forced abortion was nothing surprising at that time. Regularly, I think of those babies whose lives were never able to blossom and grow. I am grief-stricken to picture the vivid and complex lives they could have had, as we do. Because I wasn't supposed to be born, I've been a black human being. I didn't have a huko until the end of high school when I needed an ID card to take the gaokao. My parents were both primary school teachers in our village. Different from most local parents, they valued education and were very strict. When my peers were running wild in nature, I was condemned to homework and books. That was when I got into reading. I read almost every book that was available to me. Our primary school also had a very small library with a collection mostly of translated classics. I remember enjoying Boule de Suif and How the Steel Was Tempered. I came to Beijing for school in 2014. Beijing experienced terrible pollution that year. Most of the winter days were heavily polluted and grey and suffocating. It was also that winter I lost my best friend. Two months after I started school, I got a phone call telling me she had a car accident. I guess when you're in your early twenties, the idea of a beloved one's death is still quite outside your conceptual grasp. I don't think losing her so early in life is something I will ever really get over, but I'd say the sadness has lost its sharpness over time. I believe that she remains as a part of me, as I live, she lives. After that, I developed a new understanding of death and became more open-minded about it. I'm now reading a book about aging and dying, a discussion probably most of us fail to engage with enough. 
I think apart from learning how to love people, it's even more important to learn how to take the moment to say goodbye. I kind of feel being in an awkward age, I have the feeling of being young at the right time. Yet occasionally I can't help feeling like I'm running late to everything. The world around me just keeps changing at a dizzying speed. Would I say I'm a happy person? No, not really. But I'm an idealist, which means I feel disappointed very often, because apparently it's not a perfect world we're living in. Yet I also get so often amazed because the world stores so many surprises. With the circle of disappointment and amazement, there's never a boring day. Every day I feel a new yearning for life. been listening to Strangers in China. So you can find all of Kuang's work on the Spittoon Collective's website. Spittoon is a Beijing-based bilingual literary magazine that showcases amazing artwork, stories, and poetry. Be sure to check out Spittoon at spittooncollective.com. Link in the description. Make sure you go and read all of Kuang's work. Beijing Lights is really, really incredible. So before I read the credits, I want to introduce a new segment called Talking to Strangers. So the basic gist of it is I'm going to take a question from one of our lovely strangers out there. Now, you can always email us at strangersinchinaofficial at gmail.com to ask questions. But for this segment, I will only be reading questions from the folks who support us on Patreon. If you want to support Strangers in China, go to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash strangers in China. For the price of a bowl of lanjo lamian, just once per month. You can support the show a lot. You can find a link to our Patreon in the description. This question comes from our Patreon supporter, Connor Boyd. And uh, he writes, First off, I wanted to say it's really refreshing to hear about another culture on such a personal and individual level, especially considering the monolithic representation China receives in the West. Okay, I swear I didn't write this. He goes on to say like other complimentary things that I'm, I'm blushing too hard to read. So anyway, I'll just get to the question. <clears throat> Living in China for so long, how do you feel about your own identity? To what level have you embraced Chinese culture? Do you still feel like a stranger in China? Whew. Um, that's a really good question. Ah. Uh, I actually was going to write like a whole episode about this very topic, but then I basically threw it out because I didn't have a good answer. I will just say this. So I've lived in two major cities in China, and I've also lived in a much, much smaller, tiny little city in China as well. And I can definitely say that I feel like a stranger in China. I think just sort of in conception, who I am as a person, I can never really truly like 
fit in or integrate into Chinese society. Uh, you know, in the, in the United States, there's definitely like this ideal that anybody can ultimately integrate. Like my grandparents, my, my dad, like they're immigrants from Italy. Like they can integrate into the United States. No problem. It's not really the same way in China. Like you can't just integrate. You can't just be part of Chinese culture. I guess at this point, I, I, you know, I think when I first came to China, I, I thought maybe, you know, I was going to try to fit in more than I do or something like that. But I think as I've lived here longer, I think I've just sort of accepted being an outsider. And like, I'm very comfortable in that setting. Um, one thing I will say is that like in China, in my experience, like Chinese people really, really appreciate if a foreigner has taken an interest in Chinese culture, in Chinese customs, in Chinese language. Um, and I think like the best way to sort of show to like integrate into Chinese culture in any way as a foreigner is just to show that you have some respect for Chinese culture. I will say after living so long away from home, as much as I feel like an outsider here, I want to flip that back around. When I go back to the United States, I definitely feel estranged from my own culture. Thank you for your question. That was really, that's really hard. Anyway, let's get to the credits here. Strangers in China is brought to you by the Seneca Network, powered by SubChina. You can follow us on Facebook at Strangers in China. You can follow us on Twitter at Stranger in China. Send us an email at strangersinchinaofficial at gmail.com. I want to give a huge, huge thanks to Julie and Ben, who came in to do the voice acting for this episode. They taught me a lot. They were very patient with me, and I just really appreciate all of the work that they did. Thanks to Jason for doing the work to get this pod into your ears. Thanks to Ali for all of his help with the social media stuff. Our theme song is Analytical Skeletons by Cesus. Other music in this episode was by Cesus, Purple Cat, Lo-Fi Theory, Lofi, Lagang, and Dream. Thank you to all of our patrons on Patreon for making this episode possible. Our patrons that we have so far, I'm very excited about all of them, are Jason, Avery, Jimmy, Connor, Kong, Lynn, Lucille, Randy, Julia, Caesar, Laura, and Susan. Thank you guys so much for helping out. 